Hey folks, Dylan here from Eat Wild. Welcome back to the podcast. In this episode, I'm hanging out with Lagode, Spencer Greening. We're reconnecting for part two of our discussion on Indigenous rights and title and wildlife management. In our first conversation, we talked about Indigenous approaches to harvesting uh, fish and wildlife throughout the seasons. Uh, we had a great conversation, established a lot of common ground. In this episode, we get into some of the sticky bits of a much more complex discussion about the legal framework uh, that reaffirms the Indigenous rights and title to manage land here in BC and what that means for current and future wildlife and fisheries management in BC and opportunities for uh, non-Indigenous hunters to continue hunting and fishing. So we're going to tackle some tough questions like, will non-Indigenous hunters lose access to hunting and fishing opportunities? Does the government of BC have the right to and the responsibility to manage fish and wildlife in this changing legal landscape? And what does it look like if we incorporate 10,000 years of traditional ecological knowledge into wildlife management today? So we got lots to get to in this podcast. I'm super pleased to have uh, Spencer Greening coming back. So a little bit more about Spencer. He's a really interesting guy. So he's Shimshin. He's from the Gitgat First Nation in Hartley Bay on the north coast of British Columbia. Now he's been a counselor for his community. He's done some research within his community, really focused on understanding the traditional ecological knowledge, cultural history, uh, languages from his community and and in his research, he's looked at how that all could apply to resource management in a modern context while having studied the history of resource management in his home community. He's just wrapping up his PhD at SFU. Uh, he was recently recognized by the Pierre Elliott Trudeau uh, as the Pierre Elliott Trudeau Scholar, uh, which is significant recognition for his academic work and research. And we're connecting over Skype. We're going to have a bit of fun here. Hey folks, uh, it's Dylan here. Welcome to the Eat Wild Podcast. And I'm sitting down again with my friend Lagode. Hope I got that right. Great, man. Sp- <laughs> so Spencer and I hung out, uh, well, probably a month ago now. Uh, Spencer popped, came around. We were in the, we were in the, we're still here in the, 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 the COVID era. And, um, and of course we were practicing social distancing. We managed to, uh, have a conversation that we'd wanted to have for some time. And we walked across the street. Uh, there's a cemetery across the street from my house, which is a beautiful green space. And we, we picked a tree to sit under and, and hung out and uh, recorded this podcast. And and we had intention in this podcast to kind of talk a little bit about a bunch, well, talk about uh, First Nations governance, land management, um, the relationship between resident hunters and Indigenous hunters here in BC, and we had this ambitious plan. And uh, of course, we ended up just talking about wild food and wild food harvesting and all the things we we're very passionate about. Had a great conversation, which became part one of our podcast. But we had, we committed to coming back to the podcast and uh, and trying to have that more challenging conversation and kind of cover off, um, I think, some important topics that are relevant to certainly um, hunters here in British Columbia, but anybody that's interested in the in the uh, in the political landscape of um, how uh, indigenous communities are, are really transforming here in British Columbia and and what's happening from both the legal context as well as 
um, what's happening in terms of uh, the way of life that that these communities are um, are are continue to live here in BC. So I think there's lots of cool stuff to talk about. Um, anyway, so I want to introduce my, introduce my my guest, Spencer Greening. Um, hey, Spencer, welcome back to the Well Podcast. How you doing? I'm doing great. Happy to be uh, back. Okay, so where are you now? I'm in Prince Rupert, BC, in my home, in my home office. Perfect. Hey, so if you're an Indigenous person, like, is it appropriate to do an acknowledgement of the territory you're in before having a meeting? Uh, I don't... I think if you were in your home territory and you had to introduce yourself anytime <laughs> anything formal happened, you'd be wasting a hell of a lot of time. Yeah, fair enough. Well, let's just for for the for the contents of the listeners. Why don't you share where you are and and then maybe you can share the the uh, what community you're from and and how how it all fits together. Cool. Um, well, right now I'm sitting in the heart of uh, Simshian Simshian territory on uh, British Columbia's northwest coast in uh, in Prince Rupert, BC. And for the listeners who don't know where Prince Rupert is, most people know where Haida Gwaii is. And if you flip Haida Gwaii, sort of the island of Haida Gwaii onto the mainland, uh, you, you get generally Tsimshian territory. And uh, it's kind of like right close to the bottom tip of Alaska too. So on a nice day, if you go out on the water, out on the ocean, you can see Alaska from where we're at. And uh, it just so happens that I am Tsimshian or I am a Tsimshian living in Tsimshian territory. So that's uh, some context into why I'm here in Prince Rupert. You were here in Vancouver because, of course, you're you're uh, you're completing your doctorate at SFU. That's so correct. You, you yeah, must be back and forth. And what are you studying at SFU? So uh, I'm studying a bit of uh, uh, it, it's. I'm in interdisciplinary studies, but I think when you like engage with indigenous knowledge, it's always interdisciplinary. It's always wrapped up in politics. It's wrapped up in history. Uh, it's wrapped up in, in the environment. And so for me, particularly, I, I study a mix of oral history, resource management, stewardship, rights and title politics and archaeology and blend that all together and kind of saying, how do we tell the story of indigenous peoples? And our places on the landscape, and how does that resonate with questions we're asking today? Cool, and that well, I, I appreciate you sharing your time and knowledge on on this platform, how uh, on the Eatwell platform, and I I, I just uh, I really appreciate you step, stepping out here and doing that with me, and uh, helping me get a better understanding of a lot of these very complex issues, and I I really benefit from it because it's not just as someone who spends a lot of time advocating for hunt, hunting and, and the hunting community, I also take this stuff back to my work life where I work as a land manager and and, um, and work with provincial parks. And then a lot of the work I do is with indigenous communities and in different different models of some type of collaborative management over the over the, the park landscapes and stuff. So it's cool. So I appreciate you taking the time. And, I, and I've already learned a lot from you, and I'm looking forward to this conversation and learning a bit more. So thank you. Um, gosh, where do we start? I had a, I had a, um, I had some questions. So, so the first question, and I, I so we, we've actually, to, to, in full disclosure, 
we actually recorded this podcast already once and we had a great conversation. And then I think we both kind of felt after like, we're like, well, for me in particular, like you're my first like real guest. Like you're not just a buddy that, I mean, you're a buddy now, but like, you're not just like a buddy of mine who's just really passionate about hunting and has like, is part of my inner circle. And I felt like you're the first person that comes with like a really important piece of information that only you have, or not only you have, but you're, you're, I'm very lucky to have you sharing this on this podcast. And, and I was like, man, I should have really like come more prepared, like with actual questions. Like I just like having conversations and I ended up, kind of, we just ended up having a great conversation, but we might've missed um, a few things that I think we need to talk about. So this is like round three to really like get this out in a way that hopefully um, paints a positive picture around uh, where we can go forward with, uh, you know, indigenous and resident hunter relationships and, uh, and some collective understanding of, um, land management from both perspectives and where we're heading. So something along those lines, we'll try and get there. So, um, so my first question is, uh, Spencer, when you think of a resident hunter, what comes to your mind? What are like the care, like the characteristics, what does this character look like in your mind and what is their motivation to hunt? <laughs> so, um, by resident hunter, I assume you sort of mean non-indigenous hunter. Is that yeah, right? Like the, the average Joe that's like, like, we'll just say like somebody who drives from the lower mainland up to Shimshin territory to shoot a moose every year. Like, Right. What is like from a from a, an indigenous person's perspective who has grown up, lived there, relied on that moose population for time immemorial, and yet there's this other community of people coming into your territory. Uh, what it, like who, when you think of that person, give them a character. Like what do you what do you think they who they are? Um, man, I I don't want to sound like an asshole. No, that's why but, I'm asking the yeah, question. Yeah, I'll, I'll dive right in. I mean, it's the the issue is it's wrapped up in so much other like weight, and the weight is what we'll get to later. This this fact that we're on like unceded territories where there's all these agreements that should have taken place between indigenous and non-indigenous governments that haven't, and so right off the bat. Non-Indigenous people have a, uh, this privilege to go hunt crown land or public land, right? Mm -hmm. From an Indigenous perspective, it's like you're coming into my yard and stealing from my garden, and I never gave you permission. So why are you doing this? Mm -hmm. And so there's instant anger and frustration. And it's not that I don't, like, I would gladly share my garden with you if you were respectful and we were buddies and you could ask or all of this. But that's like this interesting piece that I think people don't understand is that there's this heavy legal stuff, this, this, these politics involved in this. And so instantly, not even thinking of what this person looks like, it just incites frustration. And, and it's really a systemic uh, problem. It's, it's not a human problem because humans could have like on a person to person, you could figure out an agreement or something. But what we have is the system or legalities around that system causing this tension. Yeah. And so right off the bat, that's like the feeling. <laughs> uh, second, it's 
generally someone who is detached from that land that just sort of reaps its benefit, uh, reaps sort of the rewards and benefits from that. And the only way they could do that is if they come from a place of extreme privilege. No, not everyone has the ability to, to drive and access to a vehicle, access to these things to come so far. And, you know, I mean, you, you sort of picture the person in a giant truck spending boatloads of money wearing full on Sitka gear. And you're just like, who has that much money? Um, that's, that's me like being critical and like judgy. And I realize now that like, People, for people, this is their life. Like, this is their hobbies. They put everything they own into this. They they save up just to go on to vacation for hunting. I, I know this, but this is like, if I were to judge this on face value and just imagine what a resident hunter. That's what, like, that's, I think, what not only Indigenous people, but people in the North think. Like, old timers. They say, oh, those city people come up in this and... And they're all in their camel gear when all you need to wear is a flannel jacket and jeans and you can go hunt a moose. There's a very like vivid idea of what a, a, a southern sort of um, uh, lower mainland hunter is too on uh, for people in the north. And that it, it all gets wrapped up. But the interesting piece is that, <laughs> I mean, we're all here to do the same thing and that's to kind of get healthy food on the table and build a relationship with the outdoors. Yeah. And there's some common ground there for sure. And we'll hopefully we'll find our way back to some common ground, but I think it's important that we don't, we have to acknowledge that this exists. And like, like I could only imagine how an indigenous community would feel with people come. I, we're really seeing it right now because what, what we're dealing with right now in BC is we've got, of course we've got COVID's happening. Hunting seasons are opening up. The bear season, uh, we're looking, it's open right now, and, and, and turkey season, and we're looking ahead to uh, the fall. And, like, you know, there's no end in sight for when we can reasonably uh, travel and not have a risk of transmitting the COVID virus from the urban center of Vancouver to, say, Prince Rupert or Chinchin yeah. Territory, small community. Like, like, not only is there, like, I, I can only imagine how a very vulnerable indigenous community feels right now than to have somebody roll in with their truck and camper and their ATVs and stop at the gas stations and go in and buy a six pack of beer. And like that would feel vulnerable right now. And it's like, it's not just a couple of moose. Now we're talking, it's like, wow, this is like, so it's, I can see there being some concern, yeah, deep, deep concern. And it's rooted in, some history that is like not all that cool and totally it, it, the interesting piece is it's reminiscent of british columbia's history of the no northern or rural british columbia is meant for extraction and it benefits people who don't live here and it's like this boom and bust thing that continues to hurt and makes people in the north or people who live rurally more vulnerable and so that's wrapped up in this whole thing too of how how people feel about um hunters yeah <laughs> yeah the, the the i had a good thought i kind of i'll just hold it for a second so maybe i'll i'll, I'll uh for i i think the next question i want to ask and and uh, i'd like you to ask this guy maybe uh, and i'll i'll 
maybe ask it of myself here, but um, or you can ask me. But um, what do you think that that like resident hunters' perspectives are of indigenous hunters? So how do you like how do you think the average resident hunter perceives an indigenous hunter? I <laughs> yeah, I mean the thing that would jump out first for me is well tell me what you think or what you've thought in the past and then tell me what you think others think on your own experience but i can dive in too since you've already said you'll probably answer that um yeah i i would assume that it's like non-indigenous hunters think indigenous people are lawless they're given this sort of get out of jail free card to hunt as they would uh anywhere uh, in the province or in the country and legally they're protected to just sort of run rampant and do whatever they want. I think there's all kinds of connotations like racist connotations around uh, um, being wasteful and being a drain on the economy and and that's the same for hunting too. It's I assume people think, well, we put all our hunting dollars into conservation and management, yet um, there's people who get to not only hunt and hunt without laws, but uh, do that without putting into resource management and that sort of stuff. I assume those are some of the the, the negative connotations and, and the misconceptions that exist. I also know that that's not the case for everyone. Like, I think what we're providing here in this conversation is to start, we got these two extreme examples. There's these two dichotomies. Yeah. And, and, and yeah. we'll bring it back to like what probably actually looks like on the ground. But yeah. I, I mean, there's a couple of reasonable people, maybe like you and I in the middle that might be able to get some work done here. But <laughs> I think we have to acknowledge that yeah. we're both dealing with extremes uh, on each end of the perspective. And, um, because uh, one of the okay, before I go to my thought, I, okay, so I just gonna make a note here because I'm gonna forget it about it. But um, so to go back to like, I, I think you, you you've kind of described what I think that you know I I hear these things in particularly an older generation of hunters. And not, I'm, I'm very lucky, like I've been very much, my mentorship group uh, of hunters um, have all, you know, basically, well, have worked along, worked within Indigenous communities, like as commercial fishermen, or as park managers, or um, like they, there is much greater awareness as to the relationship and the history of the relationship between Indigenous peoples and, and that resource economy that you're, t you're speaking to and, 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 you know, and have lived and worked and have a lot more empathy for, uh, you know, in, in, indigenous communities that are, that have been hurt or, or, or there's like communities that are hurting or individuals that are hurt. Like there's just a little bit more awareness. And I'm kind of lucky that I grew up with that. Um, but boy, like when I like, I, I, when I go on hunting BC and I'll Google something like, and, and start to track through and then as soon as there's a, there's, there is a voice on there and it's a very, it's a very ugly voice around it with very strong racist views towards indigenous communities and people here in British Columbia. And it's, and it's persistent. And, and you do see some people pushing back against it uh, on, 
the hunting VC forums. But by and large, you see a, a pretty dominant voice and people piling on um, around some negative things around hunter allocation or allocation for um, allocation. I should break that out a little bit. But like um, where Indigenous communities may get more access to wildlife than, say, resident hunters. Um, and I think that creates uh, there's a lack of understanding for why that might be in certain cases. And I think that there is uh, there's generally some fear and misunderstanding in the hunting community around why that might be the case, why Indigenous people don't necessarily have to follow the same regulations and laws that a resident hunter would have to follow. I think that there's some sentiment that the resident community are making sacrifices, as in sacrifices as in not hunting specific species at certain times because they feel like it's good for conservation and good for wildlife management. And then they look at the indigenous communities that approach their systems of wildlife management or, or harvest differently and point to that and say that's wrong and it's not, you know, it's wiping out the animal population. Um, so I think there's definitely lack of understanding, lack of empathy, uh, and then, and then, and then fear—a fear that the, the the indigenous community or hunters are hunters are going to lose access, lose the privilege of being able to go out and hunt and fish on these lands, and that somehow indigenous communities will block access or or, or not allow for the continued pursuit of of what is their way of life as well. So mm. I think that kind of <laughs> very difficult to answer that question, but that's the best I can do. The um, how did I do? I I think that's fair. I think the really the key piece of this is like on on whichever view you're taking. If you're on either extreme, uh, either is sort of rooted in fear, and so the important question in this relationship is. How do we throw those fears on the table and how do we address them? So one before, okay, I'll go back to my thought here. And this is why I think this uh, is, so you spoke to it, like the, the, the history of British Columbia's economy being like extract from the North, extract from the, the, the hinterlands uh, for the benefit of the center and the, 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 the richness goes to the center and, you know, there's there's a blindness from the city as to the impacts that's happened to those communities, um, those rural communities, those First Nation communities, and then the landscape as a whole. Uh, as long as we are meeting our annual allowable cut, that's the highest priority for, for BC. It, if as long as we can build that pipeline, it's good for the economy. Um, and the large, a lot of people feel that way. And, and that, the... And we're seeing, and as we saw with the Wet'suwet'en um, leadership, the, the chiefs coming together and saying, "Hey, we want to we want to reevaluate, you know, this decision on this pipeline coming through that was made by the by the provincial government and the federal government." The there's there's conflict, but I think there's a, there's there's shifting tides where the indigenous governance system is now having a larger impact on decision making on the landscape. Yeah. And 
Most people aren't really clued into this here in the city, what that actually means. There's some people who are educated, understand history, and are like, this is the way we're heading, this is the way it's got to go. That's very much the minority of people. Most people are oblivious to it, and it doesn't actually impact them. They can live in their little condo in the west end of Vancouver, and never, none of this is ever going to impact them. Right. But what's interesting is the people who are going to be on the front lines of this discussion are going to be the people who fish here in BC, and because we share the resource of fishery currently. And it's going to be the hunters who are, you know, uh, who rely on resident hunters who rely on access to wildlife to maintain a way of life that they've come to know. And for many of us, that's been generational. Um, so, so what's interesting is this conversation is starting with these communities and it's going to, it's going to impact our communities, uh, whether it's the resident hunting community, the fishing community, indigenous community, but it actually, it, it it really is happening on a much larger scale, but the parties aren't actually in the same room. Whereas we're kind of in the same room, we actually deal with each other quite a bit, and we're dealing with this very complex problem of like understanding what it means to move forward with, you know, shared decision making over over land or transfer of responsibility. So I see this as an important conversation, at least in my way. I see that what's happening in BC. Um, what do you think about that analogy? I, I mean, I may be interpreting this wrong. You can correct me if I am, Dylan. But it sounds like the analogy automatically assumes that with Indigenous people gaining strength or say, there's a negative impact on hunters. It's like they're at the, for, the, the front lines of what? the front lines of losing out. That's what I'm hearing. But yeah. the, what I automatically think is they're at the front lines of benefiting from indigenous people making ecosystems healthier. <laughs> so I think I hear what you're saying and that yes, resident hunters will definitely feel the impacts of indigenous stewardship gaining strength. But let's not assume those impacts will be totally negative, which I don't think you are. I just think that that's kind of how this comes ac across because um, it, it would involve policy change, which is a big question mark for hunters. And uh, and just to like, maybe I'll dive into it deeper, but there is one example in BC where a nation has a treaty the only example of like a treaty in the north that is fully fledged a huge piece of territory we could talk about later where what that kind of looks like for hunters. But yeah, as an analogy, I think you're spot on that it's easy for people who don't hunt or fish to support indigenous rights because it feels like the moral thing to do. Well, and I think on some, like, I think a lot of those people do support indigenous rights. They just don't know what, like, it, they, 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 they aren't, they aren't impacted both positively or negatively or anyway, their, their, their life will not change as we progress towards, uh, what will become a different way of managing the land. Yeah. And, and, and I don't, uh, like, and I think you're, you, I think that most hunters fear that, yeah. yes, this will change in a negative way, but, I think that we haven't got to that point. Like what I, where I think we're at is that we're at the conversation point where yeah. 
we can actually have a conversation. And, and if we have the conversation right and we do a good job, yeah. we should all benefit. That's really what should happen, right? Totally. And, and, and we're just, we're like, we're just the first, like, it just, it's kind of funny that a bunch of like hunters and fishers and the indigenous communities who we, who we interact with because we're hunting in their territories, um, we're going to have the first conversation on what is a much bigger, challenging conversation that, and yeah, it'll be, it'll be, and, and we're, we're at the forefront. And I don't know for the, <laughs> I wouldn't say, I don't know. Well, it's common ground. Mm-hmm. So maybe there is a good, there is a good place for, for us to start having that conversation here. Cause we do share something extremely important. And I think that common ground will come out of this conversation. Okay. So I, I gotta, I got, so I think we should start a, we're, we're kind of set the stage at the high level and kind of where we'd like to get to. So let's, let's kind of move into some of the more like, uh, Te- well, I wouldn't say technical by any means, but if there was one thing that you would hope that resident hunters and the BC public could better understand about indigenous hunting, what would that be? Where would you want people to start? I think uh, whenever I've engaged with uh, non-indigenous hunters that have no background or sort of relationship with indigenous people. I think the the large conception is is that our systems are lawless. That's that's the big hurdle to overcome that the western world which we're all taught in elementary school, uh high school, you know, anyone who has a formal education in the west up until recently was largely taught, you know, the Western world represents civilization. The Western world represents progress. <laughs> and so, I, I mean, why would you have any other reason to think that other cultures have anything to offer? And so I think the big piece is recognizing, okay, wait, this isn't like the best culture in the world. Western culture is not. And when we're talking about ecosystems and law and policy and resource management, there are cultures that offer amazing, in-depth, brilliant knowledge around that. And those cultures often, not often, they always had legal governmental structures. And it's it's not this idea that humans were just um, savages running loose uh, without any sort of formal structure in their society until the West showed up or until... until um, uh, Eurocentric government showed up. There was strict policy, there was strict law and strict legal systems that are often more complex and more strict than what we would even see today in, in our, in our hunting, in how we hunt and how we manage resources. So I think that's like number one. And to just bring it back is if you know that and believe that, you're open to this idea that diverse knowledge systems actually bring something to the table and they bring just diversity is always the best problem solver. There's, there's tons of studies out there that show that having diverse people at the table, solving a problem always brings the best and most efficient results. So why wouldn't we, if we're looking at addressing environmental issues, why wouldn't the West or the colonial government, Canada, um, lend voice to other cultures. I think there's this great, off the top of my head, there's this great book. Um, 
by one of the world's most famous, or at least North America's most famous anthropologist, modern anthropologist, uh, Wade Davis. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, the book is The Wayfinders. How, why, I think it's the subtitles, Why Ancient Wisdom Matters in a Modern World. And I think that sentiment um, is really important for uh, the world to hear is that especially people who aren't connected to ecosystems and, and, and the natural world, like at least hunters and fishermen of all types are connected and have a relationship, but our society as a whole really needs to understand why some of that ancestral ways of living can really make our society healthier. Those are some things that jumped into my mind. <laughs> I think I, I like I like the couple though. I like the, I really appreciated that perspective. Uh, the, I, I think that what I mean I know that one of the things that I I learned from talking to you and, and others uh, is that there's a perspective that there was an abundance. There was so much wildlife. There was so many fish in the river. There was so much wildlife on the land that you didn't really need to manage it. You just like go out and catch as much as you need for the community. And then there would be abundant wildlife forever. And, and so I think in my, my assumption was, is that, well, if there's an abundance and a relatively low population of people, well, then there'll be, it'll be plentiful. I, what would you say to someone who holds that opinion? Um, I like to use this example of, of Prince Rupert here. I've heard archaeologists suggest there is potentially 10 to 15,000 Tsimshian people in the harbor. And uh, that's more than what's potentially more than what's today. I mean, Prince Rupert today fluctuates, but let's say it's around 10 or 12,000. Um, I've never been in Prince Rupert when it was above 15. Regardless, we can imagine what chaos would ensue in Prince Rupert if there was no regulations around fishing. It would be crazy. It's the mouth of the Skeena, the second biggest salmon run in British Columbia, right? Fraser is the first, the sockeye. Um, Then it's the Skeena that just fuels life on the entire watershed up to interior BC. And if we had no regulations right now, we would just destroy it. We would destroy so much because we would overfish for, um, for we could overfish for economic gain or for whatever. That's why we have regulations in place to, to manage the resource. Mm-hmm. Well, you could just imagine the same for the Tsimshian people. If there were 10 to 15,000 Tsimshians in this area of, and on top of that, every single household was harvesting a lot and there were no grocery stores like we have now. There's a lot of resources being used. And if there were no laws and no moral or, or, or legal values put to management of life, we would easily wipe out the salmon. It's, it's not like we, we couldn't do it because the technology was there. The technology was there to wipe it out through fish traps, through, um, uh, we had seine nets, we had gill nets, we had all kinds of nets just made of different materials. It's just 
there was ways of doing things that didn't do that. And so what you can see is on the coast, indigenous peoples actively harvesting in a way that allows um, species to thrive. And that's through selective fishing. Um, I mean, there's for indigenous people, there's many different ways to do that. There's the technical ways of the tools you use, like fish traps, um, something that would resemble, um, is it pound nets? I think that's what... I'm not familiar with pound nets. No. It, it's, it's a way of uh, intercepting fish and then selectively choosing. Okay. And so there's a method um, and then you have like a pen and you can release the rest out. So you can actively choose how many male spawners you're getting, how many female. Uh, and, and by doing that, you can hone it into a science to where you uh, you really allow a population to thrive. And that's what people did to build up the population on on this coast. And so, I mean, that's kind of how I would answer it. But there's other things too. I mean, indigenous people believe spiritually there's a huge importance on, on how we treat the fish that adds to its, its, uh, its, its management, its sustainability. And that's a bit of another conversation, but, but, uh, it was very conscious. And, um, if, if you want some other examples, I mean, well, I'm going to ask you something because I, I can just imagine like, like, uh, so the Skeena has, would, there would have been a village at the mouth of the river and then probably villages all the way up at different exceptional fishing points and where there's other values that are important. Like, how did, what was the governance structure in place to ensure that, like, the families and the communities living at the mouth of the river, like, didn't just take out, like, you know, they get their first crack at everything and take out the best fish or the most fish or the biggest fish or, and then, you know, leave it, leave fish for the next family. And then the next family has to leave fish for the next family. Like it, it would, it would require like a fair bit of cooperation or trust or regulation or law. So I'm curious, is, can you speak to that? Totally. I think what this involves then is like describing the sort of coastal legal governmental system. Yeah, I think that's where we're getting to. I think we've kind of found our way here. So okay. we should take this example and build it out to kind of paint a picture of what governance looked like pre-contact. Uh, and, and, and in particular, as it relates to stewardship of land or right. fish or animal resources. So I, I would encourage anyone who's hunting or fishing, they know that BC is carved up into regions. And each of those regions sort of have guidelines and regulations. You can imagine a very similar thing on, uh, let's say, the Skeena. From the mouth, the coast, the mouth of the Skeena, even on the outside areas of the Skeena, all the way up to um, Babine Lake. And those areas, um, geographically different areas would be carved up into regions, so to speak. And those regions would be governed or stewarded by specific lineages. For us, we have a clan system, and within those clans, they sort of break down into smaller particular groups that we happen to call host groups. But sometimes people might be familiar with hearing, oh, I'm from this clan or I'm from this. Often it re refers to a very specific lineage that is tied to a specific geography uh, that, that really steward or governed, let's say, a tributary of the Skeena, for example 
or a tributary of this inlet on the coast. And you would be responsible of for providing enough uh, resources for your family, your community in that particular region uh, for the winter or for however long. But also you would be mindful that, oh, I need to make sure that we can rely on this next year. And so I'm not going to take too much. I, I got to be aware of this, that we're going to rely on the same place in the coming years. But it also, that sort of awareness extends far beyond the local in that you go all the way up the Skeena and you remember that there's people up there too. So these political systems, different lineages or communities have ties and responsibilities to people as they go. And there's these immense trade networks, um, political networks that are super important that if you didn't respect them or do things respectfully, you would cause war and chaos and all these things that humans um, naturally don't want. And there were definitely times that that happened. We can't romanticize that it's always been this perfect, uh, you know, political paradise where uh, people just got along. I mean, there's vast histories of war and conflict. It just so happens that we have these systems in place that, uh, one, allowed ecosystems to thrive and through thousands of years of relationships, really recognize the interconnectedness of communities from the coast to the interior and, uh, and held them up to a, a, a sort of this management, this natural, the management of the nat natural world, this really good standard. And, uh, and so, yeah, when I, when, if I were to tell a, 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 non, a resident hunter on how to imagine it, I would just say, just imagine those zones that you pass through as a hunter. And know that in within that, there's these different, you could carve up these areas and indigenous people still have responsibility. They still have the legal and uh, political right and the, and the responsibility in our own law to govern and manage those areas. And that's why it's so easy to butt heads on this because the indigenous people of those areas are saying, hey, this is our responsibility. We want to manage and steward this. And the government is saying, no, we have our own laws on how we do that. And then it goes back to that garden analogy that I first did. And it did as people are saying, this is my garden to manage. And, and, and so why are these foreign laws just being thrown onto us? If anything, non-Indigenous people should follow our laws and we should have that stewardship power. So that's sort of like, the, the dynamics of how this works. And I just want to bring it back to the original question is really what this is, is humans ensuring that um, society and, and life is sustainable in a way that uh, uh, not one group is becoming this, uh, I, I, I don't know, irresponsible uh, superpower when it comes to managing resources, because that would bring chaos. But you have an array of relationships of people all being aware that there needs to be sustainable management of things like salmon, of things like wild game, hunting, fishing, trapping, in order to make society cohesive in some way. Cool. And so the communi uh, 
So is this the potlatch? So if it does, does this governance feed into the potlatch structure that I'm somewhat familiar with around communities? So that being part of the community structure. I'm glad. I'm glad you asked that because I totally like. Yeah, um, I should have mentioned that in British Columbia, a lot of people, at least on in the western part of British Columbia, the northwest and the coast primarily, uh, follow this potlatch system, which is essentially kind of like. Uh, you could imagine how Canada follows the parliamentary system and you have different people from different regions representing this coherent institution that decides on laws, debates things, comes to argue law and agree on law. It's almost very similar in that the potlatch is a place where different lineages, clans come together and make big uh, societal decisions and agreements. And I think there's this misconception that it's just this thing where people show up and dance and have food. But no, that's an aspect of it. Um, culturally, and there's reasons why, it's not a superficial dance or superficial art or anything like that. Often those things are tied to property ownership and, uh, and Indigenous rights and title. But what it is, is an institution like the parliament where people gather and really debate and, uh, and, and, and agree on how society should be run. And for, I mean, I don't want to generalize that everyone in BC had a potlatch system, but that's just one example of the many governmental systems that do exist in BC. And that's a prominent one on the Northwest coast or the coast of BC. Cool. Thanks for sharing that. That, okay. So I think like, I think we kind of like, I, I just wanted to kind of get that that piece of the foundation described that I mean there's there was governance pre-contact and and we don't know nearly enough about that as a society. One of the things that like um we I I struggle with is that even like I like I'm forty four year old guy. Like when I was in elementary school, high school, like we didn't learn about indigenous history. I mean, we we learned that there was indigenous people lived on this land before, but we never really understood like how they lived, how was the governance, like what, mm -hmm. what, would it, what did it look like? And then certainly didn't understand what happened to the society and the structures that were here. And, you know, it wasn't until I got into university that I started to understand that story, hear that story. And a lot of that was from you know, having to mine for it myself. It's certainly not part of the mainstream at the time, going back, you know, what it would have been 20 years ago now. It wasn't part of the mainstream conversation. And I think it was, wasn't until kind of the I think the uh inquiry into missing indigenous women, uh missing murdered and missing women, uh, that some of these conversations started coming out more so in mainstream media, at least from right. from my perspective. Um, um maybe we'll go there and I think it's probably we're gonna have to go here at some point. Is is to kinda talk about um how we got from you know, having a fully functioning uh, society that managed land, had autonomy, had systems and governance, and then, of course, some terrible things happened. Mm. And and that brought us to a place where we are now, where we kind of started out talking about this, where it's like, um, uh, you know, that we we're trying to find a way back to where, you know, indigenous communities are fighting to get their way back through courts, through establishing uh, 
their rights and title on the land in different ways. And, and, and that's kind of what we started talking about. Um, are you comfortable kind of sharing some of the pivotal pieces of the impacts of colonialism on, at least from your, it, it, from your perspective, um, some of the foundational pieces? Yeah. I mean, I'll, uh, I'll do my best to give like a snapshot um, without deep, like deep detail of why we're at where we're at today. Um, Thank you for that. <laughs> no problem. So I think this, a foundational thing to recognize is that colonization started in like Eastern Canada and then moved West. And there's this piece that is really important in Canada today where there's an agreement that both societies would exist. There's this thing called the wampum belt. Have you heard of that? No, no. It's one of the first agreements between indigenous people and the colonial government. And it was a legal agreement. And the wampum belt was from the indigenous perspective, the legal document that agreed to this. And, um, and it was this image of sort of two lines that represented two societies uh, and each of them would exist, coexist together and neither of them would bump into the other and they would have good relations between the two, but they would never overpower and there would never be a supremacy and they would just coexist. And that's what the relationship was. It was power structures were, they were on a level playing field and they would go together. And that was, Canada built built its treaties on that sort of model. Yeah, okay. So as you move westward, you have treaties being built with the understanding that Indigenous peoples will be able to live as they've always lived. And they're, we're going to negotiate terms for what is Indigenous peoples land and what is crown land. With the, well, with the sort of agreement that Indigenous people, we're, we're never going to sort of colonize them in a way that British colonies have done in other places. Just so happens they couldn't get past their nasty habits. And um, under that agreement, they went behind Indigenous people's backs and did a bunch of bad things. Um, I, I mean, I don't want to be disrespectful and, and, uh, and, and <laughs> making this that aspect of history sounds simple, but I mean, there's just treaties aren't honored. Um, there's intended use of smallpox and disease. It's been documented that it was intended by the government to sort of use tactics of diseased uh, goods and things on indigenous people to kill them out. And there's all these messy things that sort of go across Canada. By the time you get to BC, uh, the rest of Canada's kind of gone through the ringer. Um, indigenous populations have dropped immensely from disease. Uh, residential schools are fully functioning. Uh, by the time there's a solid government in British Columbia. And so, uh, it, it's, it's policy. For indigenous children to be removed and assimilated in residential schools are where, I mean, unmentionable abuse happens and all kinds of things 
where indigenous people aren't allowed to exist in their culture um, or speak their language or do any of that. Um, that's another topic people should be educated on. And they're bound to these little reserves in BC and they were never negotiated, sort of never had treaties really negotiated at large. There's a few little ones. And so while that's going on, BC is becoming this sort of this, this entity. And at that point in time, the government is sort of like, well, under our own law, yes, we're supposed to be negotiating what crown lands are and what indigenous lands are uh, under our own law. That's, that's right. That's what we're supposed to do. But we're at British Columbia now, and it really looks like that one, because of disease, all the Indians are going to die. Or two, if they don't die, they're going to assimilate through the residential schools and they won't even care to engage in their own way because who would want to live in the way they want to live anyways? They want to, they probably want to be a part of society and residential schools are good and all these things. So that's what's going through the mind of the government. And so they think that they can just come in and implement colonial society in BC without dealing with any of the stuff they're legally supposed to. So we fast forward to this century, or the uh, let's say the 1900s, and um, there's a tight grip of colonialism in British Columbia, where Indigenous people, there's now these laws introduced. Uh, indigenous people have much less population from an array of reasons, um, but laws are introduced to really ensure their assimilation. Uh, ceremonies are illegal. So speaking of the potlatch, which was like our parliament was considered illegal because it was seen as a ceremony. So you start to remove people from their territories and make it illegal and they go to jail and die in jail if they don't abide by that. So that became sort of a reason to not engage openly. It was illegal for indigenous to get indigenous people to get lawyers to have a lawyer. So they could never fight for this in the courts. And and all their population were going to residential schools or else they would go to jail. And so that's sort of the mix up until the 60s about. In the 60s, uh, there's a huge sort of change where there's the social justice movement where, where people are becoming empowered, you know, the um, uh, uh, just like um, there's the Black Panther movement. There's the American Indian movement. People are getting fed up and there's all these social movements happening around this time. Mm -hmm. Just so happens, Indigenous people are getting lawyers now too. They're legally allowed to get lawyers. And so now this momentum is building where, whoa, we can finally ad uh, address this illegal stuff that Canada was doing as a country to Indigenous people because, yeah, we can finally do it. And so from the 60s until now, you're seeing momentum slowly build to, to, to where we're at, where, where now throughout the 90s, we got court cases. There's the Niska lands claim. There's the Niska, the Calder case was a big one about um, proving that the Niska people in the north never abolished title. Canada did, never made an agreement. So they have a right to their land still. And all these other court cases, Delgamook, that indigenous people, oral histories are legitimate. Their government systems are legitimate. And now we're at today where the Tilkotin have rights and title. 
And so it's kind of this backlog of, of justice showing up because indigenous or sort because Canada never followed their own laws when it came to populating British Columbia. And it's the irony. I think it's interesting that those laws that they didn't follow in the, they didn't follow their own law in the first place, but it's, it's our, it's the law of the land today under the Canadian government system that is continually showing favor to the fact that they didn't follow their own rules to begin with. So yeah. the same courts that didn't do the job, well, the same, they weren't following the courts in the first place and the rulings in the first place. And now that's all catching up to us here. Um, and, and it's demonstrating that continually through a number of court cases. So it's the, yeah, the, so the, the world that I work in now is, is that like we don't really know, like if, if we are, like the courts are telling us, if you manage land, figure out how to manage it without impacting rights or title of indigenous people. Because the courts have said, if you make a land base decision, you make a decision on the land base, it cannot have an impact on indigenous rights of title. And, and that's pretty hard to do. How, how can you, how can you do anything? <laughs> how can you do anything on the land without having an impact of rights and title as defined under the Canadian Constitution and supported by numerous cases? I mean, yeah, that's, that's where the, that's where, Canada has shot itself in the foot and where it really becomes obvious is as a whole indigenous people because of traditional cultural spiritual beliefs I don't want to generalize um, but they generally ha <laughs> um, have this deep connection or commitment to protecting environments on a national governmental level and when a government is in the business of extracting resources for profit, you're, it's going to be a major clash. And yeah. by all means, there are indigenous nations and people and government now that, you know, might be pro industry or pro uh, economics in that way. But in large, in the north, these disputes that people see or in rural areas really is still representative of that relationship. Of, of these two governmental bodies um, that stuck in this, this butting of heads because of how they come to land ownership and understanding it. Whew, man. Okay. We, we got a foundation. Yeah. A strong foundation of sort of how we got here legally. Um, you know, the one that like, you know, all of these things in life, you know, they come and you learn things. You might learn something. But sometimes it just takes like an image or a mental image or an experience for you to really understand it and what it means. And like I've had a few foundational moments when it comes to trying, you know, understanding the history of British Columbia, as particularly as it relates to the colonization of Indigenous peoples. And but the one that was so re remarkable, I was I was uh, I was out in a marine park um, with. Uh, 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 with a, 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 well, a Talaman knowledge holder, a friend of mine. And, uh, and he, um, Eric Blaney, and, and Eric was very generous with his knowledge with me. And at the time I was managing the park and he, he knew that it was important that I develop some foundational knowledge of how this landscape worked. This, this park was now called the park, but was, this is where 
his ancestors used to live, and he and he he took the time to help me better understand how that landscape functioned, so that as a park manager, I could do a better job of protecting the values that were there, mm. which I was totally blind to what the right. values were. And it took that him helping me understand that uh, by holding my hand all like <laughs> literally out through this area and showing me what was there. And, I, and but the one that really like. And we kind of spoke to it a little bit, but as we were out looking at the different uh, village sites, uh, which are now, you know, forests that have grown over uh, because the communities have moved inland to the reserve delegate delegated reserve place, and this is now a park, and you know, and so when we're looking at the area, we're looking at the footprint of these areas, and and then and he, and he said to me, he's like. You know, twenty. There's probably estimated between twenty and thirty thousand people lived in this area, and I kind of put that in my head and what that looked like, and I, it just it didn't make sense. And then and then I sort of think about the small Kalaman community that I, you know, you drive through the community, and and if you do any business with the community, you walk through the reserve, and it's tiny. I mean, there's like I don't know if there's a thousand people in that community, and then it and I and and I in my head I was like, well, what happened to all the people? And I didn't know the history to make the connection that everybody died. Everybody was, everybody died from tuberculosis and smallpox and these, this influenza that had, that basically found its way to the West Coast. Um, even before the colonizers or the, or the, or the, or the fur traders or the people who were exploring the coast, like when, when they, when the first, it was I don't know if it was Cook or who the first explorer was that that was uh, that was mapping the coast, and when he came to Desolation Sound, a place that probably held twenty thousand um, uh, uh, Talaman people, uh, there was nobody there, and so that's why he they called it Desolation Sound because it was desolate, hmm. and it was desolate because well one because I it, it, Eighty percent of the people had already perished from the disease that got found its way there, um, and then the other, you know, the four thousand people that were left were, high, you know, hightailing in the hills because of of all the terrible things that were coming with these ships and stuff into their communities. So, um, so interesting bit of history that was shared with me, and I, I hope I'm okay share, you know, sharing that back out. And I, I'll, I'll have to beg for forgiveness if it's inappropriate. Um, but it, for me, that was a moment where I just was like. For one, I'm ignorant of my own of their own history, which I didn't understand. Which I, and I think, you know, if one thing anybody takes away from this conversation, if you're, um, if you're Canadian, like, do some digging and understand the history, because yeah, I mean, that was to me that was just not having that depth of knowledge is, um, you know, embarrassing to be honest. Um, but I'm glad I have it now. Um, but then just looking at that whole landscape through that totally different lens, so when you like if you think that there's a handful of first nations living on a reserve and that's and that's what it was like before you're wrong because that's what's left that's the fragment that's a little tiny fragment of what's left of a very vibrant and strong community and when you start to realize what's been lost and what has what has disappeared and it 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 kind of makes for me it allowed me to better understand well the loss that's been experienced by these communities but also just how these how these ecosystems function with so many more people and, and the importance of these food sources and, 
and how rich and valuable the land was and it it really was cool so anyway that was my aha moment for sure when it came to that so i got really just went way down that road there sorry (laughs) that's okay yeah and i mean the thing that gets important to me is it's important to recognize the huge amount of loss and while this is happening there's extremely racist policy happening like um horrible things that the government is doing to indigenous people but as as an aside with that loss yes there's less people but we're very fortunate that the knowledge has continued so these vast amounts of people were managing these uh, these ecosystems uh, and even though a good po- uh, amount of them died for whatever reason i mean the the numbers are astounding of let's say 90% of indigenous peoples these communities Crazy. um yeah. died from disease uh the knowledge still continued so indigenous peoples today still have this deep connection to what it, what it is like to manage those ecosystems with big populations and there's beautiful aspects of each sort of local group. I mean, the academic term, term is traditional ecological knowledge on, on how humans should live in those specific ecosystems. Mm-hmm. Can you give me an example of like pre-contact indigenous, pre-contact uh, resource management by an indigenous community? Yeah. Um, so... <laughs> There, I, I think I, I gave the example of uh, of those uh, those regions being carved up mm-hmm. uh, earlier, and I think the easiest way to picture it is that there is a government structure uh, with with people in sort of legal formal positions to make those calls. So just like you have lawmakers and policymakers in the Western government and sort of resource managers working for the government, you would have people in a similar position in, in, in at least in our world as MCN peoples, as coastal peoples um, within the clan lineage sort of political entity. There were lawyers, so to speak. There was historians and there was decision makers. And often... Let's talk about, let's talk about wildlife managers. So who... Like who is looking at like the actual like say goats? Yeah. Can I can I just pick a species and totally go 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 from bigger to smaller? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So how to like you know because goats are an interesting one too because goats are actually really hard to manage because they're actually there's not very many of them they're they're very susceptible to um, hunting pressure and predation and uh, yeah and uh, but I'm sure that if you're sitting in Hartley Bay you're looking up the hill and there's goats on the mountain and if you're hungry you're gonna go get them. Yeah, totally. Um, it, which happens to be my favorite animal to talk about. So let's talk about it. Um, I, oh, hopefully people caught from the last uh, podcast that I am from the Tsimtsian community of Hartley Bay or the Gitgat First Nation or in our language, the Gitgata. Gitgata. It, 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 that's how we pronounce it in Somalia. Um, but one of my favorite places in the territory is our mountain goat range. And so there, there is a specific hereditary name within a clan or a lineage 
that has the responsibility of stewarding that. So if you can imagine this as region X, let's call it region X includes this mountain range with this awesome goat population. There is going to be a designated title. Um, usually it's someone's traditional name. So you mentioned my traditional name, Lagod. Lagod is from a specific lineage and that lineage has specific responsibilities over a specific region. Okay. Is, is that sort of like, yeah, yeah. yeah. So you got your little area that you're responsible for managing. Exactly. Um, and then as you go up this sort of, in our culture, there's a hierarchy of names and they're, they're more powerful dependent on the name. And these names go back thousands of years and people in the community know who they are. And the elders and knowledge holders, as soon as they hear the name, they know which territory it is and which area. So let's say um, hereditary name X manages region X. Okay. Well, that person might be engaged in a lot of political business like an elected representative is. Let's say the minister of the environment has a whole bunch of politicking going on. Generally, they would have um, deputy ministers, people below them that are doing some of on the groundwork. It would be very similar in the indigenous world um, to have that big sort of spokesperson, but also these other names that are tied to that specific region that would be um, dedicated uh, hunters, but also sort of monitors uh, and, and keeping track. And they would report back. Also that sort of hereditary name X managing region X would choose the trap lines and the hunting grounds and those sorts of things based on that feedback. Just like a, a management system we would see today. One of the main issues we see is that in our area in particular, there has been absolutely zero goat data done by the British Columbia government who gets to choose bag limits or manage. However, we, let's say, person X from region X, has millennia of traditional ecological knowledge and up-to-date info on how many goats have been hunted, how many have been come through the community, what the population is like, what the feed is like, what's how much snow is on the mountain, how much, you know, what is where, where are the breeding grounds? All that information is there, but it's given such little power in the current government structure mm, because of yeah. colonization. But traditionally, it would have all the power. So it would have the say, and they would be the lawmakers. And so that's formally what traditional management would really look like on our end. And there's, mm. as a part of my PhD, we go through this thing called comprehensive exams. And it's, it's different for everyone, but you're supposed to become the expert in your field. By no means am I an expert. <laughs> but a part of that was looking at what is, does this look like internationally? Yeah. And so I, I did some digging and I just happened to choose a couple of regions to focus on. One was the Sami people of uh, Scandinavia. So they're the indigenous people of Scandinavia and they're reindeer herders. Oh, cool. And uh, through introduction of indigenous management of reindeer herds and using traditional Sami knowledge, you're having herds just flourish because those people have access to the traditional ecological knowledge of what those reindeer herds need. And so the government was doing all these sort of 
uh, uh, I mean, restricting where the reindeer herds could go. And um, they didn't have the knowledge that the Sami did on what kinds of moss these reindeer need where and when. And there's these details that just come from millennia of knowing a place that the yes. government is inserting themselves into like just ignoring that or just not recognizing it so they can continue the power dynamics that they have. Yeah. Another example that I just looked into was like Maori um, fish monitoring uh, and uh, using traditional uh, Maori tools on monitoring fish. And there's, you know, biologists were just using standard, uh, let's say, cages or traps to do things. But with Maori knowledge and stewardship, they're able to use um, tools. I, I think one example was a specific trap and how you could get data on specific um, eels or fish or whatever. And there was just this huge data gap because the government or representatives from the government, the, the people, the consultants or whoever, um, just didn't understand the life cycles of whatever species enough. There was these eels that, um, let's say they're monitoring only in this one place, but eels or fish would spend this time of the year in this whole other place. And that just wasn't even being included in the data. But that local knowledge by Maori people just really beefed up these studies. Yeah, okay. So that's what like indigenous management partnerships and where this sort of stuff is going, I think at some point. But really it stems from these in-depth systems that I sort of described where hereditary lineage or clan person X and that title has managed Region X for so long that they just have uh, generally a, 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 an archive of, of knowledge of data of that place. So you kind of you kind of stole my next question. It's kind of like okay, but before I go to my next question, actually, there is one here that is like as as someone who with your with your background and your well, you have an interesting. Um, Heritage, because you kind of you well, you've described where you're from in the previous podcast. Podcast, but do, do you think BC government has the right to manage wildlife in BC? That's, uh, I mean, for a, a lawyer and a philosopher, that's a wonderful question. For me, it's very stressful. <laughs> <laughs> I would say, in my traditional territory, absolutely not. Because I have to, I have to have this faith. I mean, there's a dichotomy of views that we already addressed, the extreme of views. On the one hand, it's indigenous people are lawless, savages, they don't have any right to anything, and they should just sort of assimilate to the Western world. Yeah, That's one extreme view. The other extreme view would probably be like, no one should even touch our land. This is our land and everyone who is indigenous in North America should leave North America. Yeah. Neither of those realities are going to exist anytime soon. No. So. <laughs> so maybe another question, maybe an easier question. Is, is BC doing a good job of managing wildlife in your territory? Cool. Yeah, I think I can answer both those questions. So given that last statement, we have to recognize that indigenous people are managing, have managed lands. 
And under the law, Canadian law that states they have a right to their territories also comes with the management of lands. So I have to have this faith that, uh, that if the Canadian government is establishing these relationships, that and Indigenous people agreed to that in the past, that they're going to agree to crown land at some point. Like crown land is going to be legitimate. And so if that's the case, then British Columbia has the right to govern crown land. The issue is that what they see as crown land in Canada right now is unjust because they never followed through on establishing crown land the right way. They sort of cheated in the game of establishing crown land. So, so that's not at all. Yeah, exactly. So that's where this gets complex. So I'll try to reword it. Hopefully what I said wasn't too confusing in that. No, no, no. I think it's good. Okay, cool. So yeah, British Columbia has a right to manage land where they lawfully established crown land. The issue is they haven't done that in British Columbia. Indigenous people absolutely have the right to manage their own territories. In Spencer's perfect world, non-Indigenous people would be following indigenous law and indigenous legal structures because I just believe those systems are, you know, work with the geographies that were given in these places. But that's sort of like Spencer's romanticized world, and we're not there yet. So you're we're not there yet, but we're well. Give us okay. So if we were to get closer to something, let let. What do you think? Um, can you think of an example of where? the indigenous management system and the current wildlife management structure has potentially worked successfully together or could work successfully together for the, for, for the benefit of the wildlife or the fish. Yeah. Have you seen that working on the land or some progression in that direction? So uh, an example is like our current guardian programs in British Columbia. We have these programs called uh, the Coastal Guardian Watchmen Guardian Pro. Um, it the Guardian program largely started on the coast, but it's moving inland. And what it looks like is Indigenous people on the ground uh, taking these roles that are sort of like, um, I mean, I've said conservation officers, but what would be the right term, Dylan? Uh, well, if conservation officers would ensue like their their primary their primary role is to uh, to enforce the law of the land as it relates to wildlife and resource right. management protection. Yeah. Um, whereas there maybe not uh, like a a park ranger is more of a steward right. of the land where they're where they're more working in collaboration with you know whoever has an interest in in the land and and would work to monitor to take on projects that are in the benefit of the land or the resources on the land to, to protect it, steward, steward the land and protect the land. I think exactly. Ranger or warden or right. might be maybe a more, more uh, ho ho uh, holistic role of work in the land, whereas uh, the CEOs, they just, you know, and, yeah, write you a ticket if they can. Yeah, hand out tickets. <laughs> okay, that's fair. And in Spencer's romantic, perfect world, Indigenous people could hand out tickets. <laughs> because I believe that our laws that we established in our territory 
have sustained us for millennia. And those are the best laws that we see yeah. um, in regards to how we live on those lands. But that's not the case right now. The government right now has been willing to allow for this uh, this program where indigenous people sort of aid to that stewardship. And I, I say the government has allowed it because indigenous people, obviously, you know, it's like um, legally speaking, we shouldn't just be stewards. We shouldn't just be like giving the government data and that's that's our job yeah. at the end of the day. Yeah, it diminishes the full the full role. You should you should be the steward, but you could also be the hammer as well and drop the exactly. And ticket and but that's not where we're at. Um, yeah, thanks for that. That's the perfect sort of way to describe it. But it has been successful because what you see is, um, if we go back to that example of mountain goats, you see hereditary traditional government systems and knowledge influencing data because the government is now pairing with indigenous people when it comes to stewardship. And so something that's really at the forefront of uh, with our people in Hartley Bay in, um, in Gitrata territory is, uh, abalone. Okay. So the, the government DFO openly recognized, wow, we sent this resource into the, the like it tanked. We destroyed this and we screwed up. And our people were saying, yeah, we told you this before you even opened it up for commercial harvest in your own management. We told you how to do this. We told you there's a specific way, a specific time, all these things you should do to harvest, but you didn't listen. And so after failure, the government said, oh, maybe we should listen. And so what you see are people like guardians in Hartley Bay specifically who are on the land because there's no budget or capacity for DFO to be out in these rural areas um, with the vast amount of territory they're supposed to oversee. You have guardians on the ground doing that work, producing data, pairing it with traditional knowledge and having input on what stewardship and management should look like. And so that's kind of what modern relationships and management looks like right now. That's one example. The same goes for salmon and specific uh, uh, rivers, indigenous communities like the area I do most of my work is a prominent river for us. And so we have our guardians there. We have our, our local harvesters, you know, all a part of that input and all a part of those management plans because that's how it should be. It needs to be local knowledge. And I think the same goes for non-Indigenous people, like the trappers who have such in-depth knowledge need to be at the table of decision-making because they have such a good relationship, in-depth relationship with ecosystems. Yeah, what's happening on the land? I mean, that, off the bat, that's one of the things that, I mean, just the in the indigenous land manager structure just is founded on local, right? Like yeah, the local people observing the land, seeing what's happening, and it's certainly something that under a provincial or even a national structure, like it really, I really have a hard time uh, being someone who relies on salmon for sustenance. Uh, and at Halibut, that the decisions are being made in Ottawa yeah. for a fishery that I know more about that fishery than anybody. And my network of friends, including Indigenous people, uh, uh, who rely on specific areas of that fishery 
that somehow decisions are happening without our involvement and and it's very difficult to feed into the decision making process um partly because like it's all happening in ottawa yeah and 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 it's very difficult and so i i see the benefit i mean i, I it only makes sense to me that like the more local the resource management is the better chance it has for understanding the complexities of the local ecosystem and how these you know success of a species right totally and it a, a thing that's important to note is that indigenous people or uh guardians or harvesters are it's not like they can't coexist there are plenty of people who come into our territory year after year that have made deep friendships with our community members and they both share information. Our guys can be like, hey, the halibut are really struggling in this area. We'd appreciate it if you didn't go jig there this year. But yeah. this area is doing pretty good. And if you want to sustain health, go do that. Um, but there have been times where the guardians go and do that and tell people. And they just, you know, swear at them, get mad at them, say they're, you know, all these racist things that... um you know, that happens on the ground still, which is too bad that um, our guardians aren't being recognized in the role that they're actually doing when they create a, a healthier ecosystem or are striving to do that for everyone. Mm -hmm. I really like uh, the, the there's, there seems to be momentum and I, uh, you know, with, with the guardian program here in BC, it's, it's, it's surfaced a couple of times in the work that I do as a park manager Go, going back, like, you know, this has been something that, 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 you know, land manager, like park rangers like myself have, have said, you know, Hey, we're, we're, we're being asked to manage these uh, collaborative, these lands collaboratively, but then the, how do you do it part is the next question. And the next question is, well, how could I, I, I want to learn about the land. So naturally you'd want to work with somebody who carries that knowledge a guardian say or somebody from the community um well the, the the people in these small communities are very busy doing other things like you know building houses taking care of the vulnerable in their communities yeah. they don't have time to hold the park ranger's hand and walk them around the park and say these are all the these are all the archaeological values that are here these are all the cultural values these are the harvesting sites that are important to us this is the like, you know, 14,000 years of history that's here that you're totally oblivious to. Um, like, those are important things. Yeah. <laughs> Not just the park rangers need to know, but the, but anybody who is trying to be part of the decision-making matrix over the what's happening in these lands, right? And so that one role I was sort of spoke to my friend Eric, who his passion was actually trying to develop a Guardian Watchman program. This is now going back 10, 15 years, and not necessarily having the support from government or funding, like whatever, whoever is going to fund it, someone's got to fund it. Someone's got to resource it. The, the benefit of having guardian watchmen on the land is all the things you said, like being able to see what's going on out there, being able to communicate with all the different users of the land, playing a role. And then, and then from a governance perspective, like someone who's trying to like do the right thing under British or under the BC law to, to better do a better job of managing the land or whatever, governance that has to happen online. like it's it's a really great function to have someone who can 
be a voice to the land and help, you know, feed into these other government systems that are happening because it's, it's a huge gap right now. And yeah. so finally, we're kind of getting, like, I'm hearing that this Guardian Washington program is, I think there's a understanding of the value that it can bring. And, and, uh, and I, and I understand that there's, and I, I, I'm not, I haven't brought into it fully in at least my parks world, but I think this is happening up and down the coast. There's a lot more movement towards building a Guardian Watchman program. And, and I think you've got more background in what that looks like from, um, uh, from Shimshin, uh, or, uh, perspective. I'm curious as if you, if you know if it's being built up and, and, uh, where the funds are coming from and is it, you know, who's driving it and, and how are we getting there? Yeah. Um, I just happen to be in the know. I never, I've never been a guardian, but I'm an avid harvester. <laughs> and I also just happened in a previous sort of life prior to the PhD. I was um, a researcher for our lands department, as well as a representative on our, um, our leadership council. So elected band council. And so, while I was there, uh, it just so happened that an example of where the funding and how this stuff happens was the Trudeau government. Um, I think it was called the Coast Protection Plan or something, but they're pumping a ton of money. Was this after they they green they green lighted the the Kinder Morgan pipeline and then they dumped a bunch of money into exactly, and so. Yeah. From the government's end, it, it, it's kind of, it's kind of sneaky. It's this double-edged sword in that, um, the Guardian program, uh, empowers indigenous knowledge in some ways. It also doesn't, like we mentioned before, uh, it, it's still not a level playing field. It's like we're given this token role of being like the local knowledge holders that are just getting used for the government. And this is a good example in that if you got enough management and uh, survey, uh, surveys, monitoring, and all these things in place, you tick enough boxes for development. And so the Trudeau government, you know, enabled this coastal protections plan where they had a Coast Guard base. They're going to put one in Hartley Bay and Bella Bella conveniently along the routes of proposed oil first, which was... Um, uh, sort of canned years ago. Yeah. yeah. But now LNG, which the Trudeau government is for. And, uh, mm -hmm. and so it conveniently ticks these boxes. So as money flows into the programs like this, uh, it's also like enabling the whole system that threatens indigenous people. And so it, it, it's tricky business. But at the end of the day, indigenous people in these communities want um, they want to, to sustain, they want to have an ecosystem that humans can hunt and fish and live off of. That's what we want. That's like bar none. We want fish and wild game for tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Which happens to be the same thing that resident hunters want. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes. Um, but we're up against this system that also wants to use, you know, resource extraction to be engaged in a global economy that just absolutely threatens indigenous communities and their ways of life. And the problem that we get into is, again, I'm generalizing, but in my world, 
Most of the indigenous people in the north are willing to sacrifice excess um, commodification, consumerism, all those things for healthier ecosystems. When at large, Western society, Canadian society, seems to be willing to put ecosystems at risk for economic development to maintain this excessive lifestyle that we live. Um, that's sort of the conundrum that we're in. Because all these things, I mean, these the federal government says we're doing this for the good of Canadians. Yeah. Which is offering the sentiment that any of these governments that say that are saying we're willing to sacrifice these ecosystems for, you know, to maintain this, this way of living that we live. Which is... Yeah. Yeah. Pretty scary times ahead too when we're gonna be governments are gonna try and dig themselves out of this COVID hole, economic hole. You know sorry, I don't wanna interrupt you. Well no, no, and I just like and I just could see like, you know, how it'll be looked at like well, this pipeline will help us get out of the hole. So it doesn't matter yeah. what happens to anything else. This this go ahead and double the annual allowable cut. It doesn't matter. We just need to get, you know, we need to get a tax base going. We need to get, you know, return to crowns. And, like, it, we need to get out from this incredible yeah. debt that we're taking on as a result. And it's going to put ecosystems at risk, wildlife at risk, and people at risk. Yeah. Like it's And I think any outdoors person and indigenous person would agree. I'm willing to sacrifice the excess that I get and change my lifestyle so I can continue this way of life. Because we see what this way of life does for us. It's an amazing, to be a, a hunter, a fisher person, someone who fishes, someone who traps, all those, it's an amazing life. And I inherently believe that people who engage in that lifestyle create healthier societies. Yeah. And I, um, I think it creates better people, man. Like, yeah, like, totally. Like I'm so fortunate to have the people in my life and the lessons I've learned from hunting and being on the land and fishing and the communities that I've built around it. Like I feel so rich and like when, I mean, it, and it, yeah, you bring people into this world and it's one of, one of the really cool things about doing the wild project is I'm taking people out of that other society, like out of that urban society where they're, they are living in a condominium on the West side of Vancouver and and then I'm bringing them into this like rich world where all of a sudden you reconnect with land and your food and you're out traveling around seeing all these beautiful places in BC and then building relationships with all these other people that are super passionate around food and where it comes from and going out and taking responsibility for getting it and like all of a sudden like life just got interesting you know yeah <laughs> like real interesting totally something that is confusing is that people in that in society, in, in, in urban, wherever in Canada are willing to like shut down and do this for the case of COVID. But why aren't we doing this for the environment? Like why when Unistotin and Wet'suwet'en are doing their, their thing, is there like extreme backlash yeah. when they say, you know, we need to protect these rivers because we're at a threshold. And we just yeah. want a healthy environment because if we don't pay attention and we continue on the path we're on, uh, we're in a lot of trouble, a lot more trouble than we're seeing with COVID right now, as an example. But 
we're able to rally as a society, as a like mainstream society is able to rally around COVID. But for some reason, we're not doing that for the environment, which is going to be way scarier in a couple decades. That's yeah. that's something that I'm thinking about. It's just confusing right now. Yeah, and I and I mean, God, this and and the story, the wet sowed story, kind of w- went away because of COVID in a way. Yeah, like like that they, that was the that was the fight. It was kind of the blow that kind of pulled the media attention, and I'm sure the wet sowed people had you know all of a sudden priorities probably changed this for you know for the next while as they're coping with yeah. Know, crazy thing that's happening in all of our communities, right? Um, I mean, the frustrating part is things like that get very politicized. And it's like, which party do you represent in the government? And and if you represent a certain party, you have to stand for, you know, 100% development or something. When really, if we step back and don't politicize it, it's just a group of people, a cultural group of people saying, hey, we need to address how we're engaging with the environment. Yeah. And, and and the arguments come out, oh, it's either like all or nothing. Well, why do you drive a car then? Why do you do this? <laughs> and it's it's just, it's not about that. It's not about these crazy dichotomies. It's about just stepping back and saying, do we really need this one instance? And if we have that moral sort of check that like other cultures represent, then... Yeah. Uh, we might be able to steer our society in healthier ways. Yeah. So, uh, and I, I think we could start kind of drifting towards like a, a, a we've, I mean, again, we're at 142 minutes or an hour and 42 minutes. And, and uh, we, we, but I think we kind of got to where, you know, I think we need to get to in this podcast is covering some of those difficult points and, uh, and those foundations of why we're here. Right. Um, the, uh, it's kind, of, you know, it's kind of neat because I, you know, I I work quite a bit with the backcountry hunters and anglers. Uh, it's a group of conservationists here in Vancouver. Generally, like, actually, we we met Spencer at one of one of their events, and um, and and really, it's about bringing you know relatively new hunters or young or younger demographic of hunters together to talk about conservation and take action for conservation. Um, and you know, that's it's it's actually quite difficult for you know to translate what is momentum like people want to try and do something good but then trying to figure out what to actually do on the land into how to be a good like how to actually have an impact in conservation mm-hmm. um maybe before we go to my next question my first question can you for for those people and a lot of those people probably actually listen to this podcast uh can you suggest like where they could take some first steps to doing conservation work particularly conservation work that might uh, uh, be congruent with efforts from Indigenous communities who are trying to do good stewardship on the land? Yeah. Um, Let me think on how to, like, address this. So there's a few, there's a few ways, there's a few levels, I think. I, I wish I had a pen and paper to write that down so I could help categorize my thoughts, but I'll, I'll, I'll try to blurt them out and see if I can follow myself <laughs> where my brain's <laughs> I'll be going. I'll catch you and redirect you if I can. One is systemic. The way to address it is uh, through the system. And a huge part of that is just education. 
I mean, through education, we see policy change. Um, I, I, just like anywhere, we could think of management in the Western world, um, more education around the biology of animals, we start to change how we manage them because we just have no more knowledge. The more education we have around um, how Indigenous people, there's our current situations, um, how they manage these things, we can see opportunity and, and, and ways to better ourselves. So on a systemic level, becoming educated is, uh, that's just, like you said, it's not, it wasn't in schools for you. Mm -hmm. So, so just, if you can't do that in schools, um, within your families, inspiring that sort of drive to, Hey, we should look into this. We should educate ourselves and be aware. Um, that's kind of my first, like, I, I think that's, if anything, I would, you know, if I, when I talk about this stuff to my colleagues and, and the, in my work world and, and, and even like in the initial meetings as we were kind of forming, uh, like the backcountry hunters and anglers for the lower mainland, like just kind of talking about, like encouraging people to seek out the history of, of colonization in, in Canada, particularly BC, and then, and then trying to, you know, have some perspectives on trying to learn about where things are at here um, in BC with respect to how Indigenous communities are doing and what their role is mm -hmm. with on the land right now. And and uh, we've talked about that a lot as a group. It's been it's been really receptive and really positive. And I think that there's a real appetite for more of that. It's it's not easy, eh? It's not no. easy to to like, you know, that's where we're doing this podcast. Is like it's one more place that you could maybe get switched on to this stuff and kind of you know, learn about this stuff. And, but man, it's hard to find the information and it's hard to ask for it. And it's hard to, and we're, we're struggling through this conversation, man. Like it's, it's a difficult conversation to have. And yeah, uh, like, it's easier you know. to keep the status quo. It's easier to be ignorant. <laughs> and the fact is we're at a, a point in our society where we can't just play that game. I mean, we've already laid out why legally, but also it's important for us to readjust our, uh, uh, our relationship with the environment as a society, which brings me to sort of my next point, okay. um, which I do see happening is adjusting our morals and values around our relationship with the environment. I think there's this huge wave of, um, I'll use the term resident hunters because that's what you used, that are taking responsibility of stewardship which just wasn't the case for years. I mean, that first question you asked me, when I think of a hunter, what do I think of? I, 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 when I was younger, I would just think of the shows I would see on TV where you're standing, you, you stand with a trophy animal and you talk to the animal in a way that like, uh, in, in those old hunting shows where it's, it's all oh, about, yeah. all about ego and all about these other things that aren't, bringing anything positive to the environment yeah where it's completely different from the indigenous world like that goes hand in hand and i think you see that with things like backcountry hunters and anglers and also i mean look at the mainstream hunting world now you got like meat eater steve ranella where there's i mean i think that's probably the biggest show around mm -hmm. and it's conservation is at the forefront yeah. And so that world is changing. And um and so as a society we need that moral sort of 
uh, indigenous people would also say spiritual shift mm -hmm. in how we relate to the environment. There's this other great book I always recommend, and it's called, uh, or I bring up often in any sort of work or interviews or stuff, Ecologies of the Heart. And it it's it, the psychologist, I think he's a psychologist, but he's a, a scientist and researcher and and he he analyzes how cultures who have an inherent sort of moral and spiritual connection to environments um, automatically create legal systems that uh, make uh, their society more sustainable. Okay. And so right now, even if our hunters and anglers and in uh, in the uh, non-indigenous world are morally in tune with what it means to be a conservationist and a hunter. At large, we're stuck in a society that's not there yet. Mm -hmm. We're in a society that still values profit over conservation. And so being at like, we can't let that be politicized either. Just like the Wet'suwet'en example, that became yeah. so politicized. But what it is, is it's becoming a conservationist first. And we see that with our hunters, but we need to see that in everyone in society. And, and and I think once you see that, or once people start doing that, they become open to these relationships, like we're seeing now. If you're saying backcountry hunters and anglers in BC are interested in this conversation, it really shows a shift in society, I think. Yeah. yeah. And, and that's the momentum that we just need to build with is is understanding there's there's alternatives in how we relate to the natural world and these cultures, like it's bringing it back to that original point. There's these diverse ways of seeing the world and a lot of ancestral sort of ancient cultures have beautiful ways of expressing that, that give in-depth knowledge on, on, on great ways to do that as people who hunt, who fish, who trap, who, who have an in-depth relationship with, uh, the environment absolutely and and to your point about that there there's parts of society that just are not there yet and they they may not get there but the thing that i know to be true is that the people who are in my community of uh, hunters and fishers and foragers want to do right by this land and are one of the best ways forward is to build partnerships with other people who share that same yeah. drive and you know it seems and, and if i'm <laughs> and if i need a partner in trying to manage for or try to dedicate myself to conservation i want to pick a partner that's got some legal clout in, and it's got some you know has got some ability to 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 win in court when it comes to protecting the values that i hold dear and i think that there's there's two there's two there's two really good reasons why hunters need to build a relationship with digital communities. One is we have so much common ground, so much knowledge that, that we could learn and, and we can share, and we can really build a relationship that'll help us move forward in all these other parts of difficult problems that we're gonna have for resource management and other things where it's gonna be hard to find that common ground. But at least, you know, we can start with a passion to manage the landscape for abundance and abundance so that we could all continue to have uh, maintain a way of life that is important to us like that 
that to me is so obvious and it's so important. And I think we don't talk about it enough, but I think we've got to shift this. There's so much negativity. There's so much fear. There's so much misunderstanding that, but that one thing I think is pretty darn true in a pretty, pretty good place to start with a relationship. Yeah. I, I, I forgot to mention, um, <laughs> I, I know we need to tie up this podcast with some final thoughts. And that was a beautiful final thought. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, indigenous people have this legal leverage to protect environments. So as long as mainstream society is backing them, there's going to be, uh, a momentum, a, a resilience in that voice of let's protect our ecosystems and let's protect hunters and fishermen and anyone who's a forager and engages with the outdoors that will come as well. And I never, <laughs> we didn't dive down and, and, in, in what that kind of looks like when Indigenous people fully get their rights. But um, I think it's good for people to explore that. If you back Indigenous communities, um, that fear will probably dissipate. And, and, of, of That fear we talked about earlier, about learning, or the fear that we're going to lose out as non-Indigenous hunters. Um, you can look at the Niska Treaty, the only people in northern BC that have absolute title. Uh, Non-Indigenous hunters still have the ability to hunt there. They're, they just manage it. They, they're the one in Niska country. They're the ones who actually have the hammer. But non-Indigenous people can hunt there. They just have to build a relationship with them. Yeah. And, and, and there's ways to go and enter draws and things like that. Just like you see in in. That's cool. How BC manages. So, so yeah, imagine a future like that and, and just know that you can really be a catalyst for that voice of, of conservation and, uh, not only for the environment, but for what we love to do, hunting, fishing, foraging, um, when you build these partnerships with Indigenous people. Yeah, that's great. That is the, the one I was looking over my little list of questions that I drafted. Again, I would say this is like, I'm actually going to try and do a proper interview and it's been, it's been difficult because I, 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 my brain goes to different places. I want to chase down other, other, uh, you know, topics that come up. I know Claire, it's time to, <laughs> Claire's having her closing thoughts as well. Um, but, uh, but I, you know, that was the one question I didn't ask you is like, do you think like, is it, is it, is it fair that a, a resident hunter would fear that, um, that their rights to, access land or harvest animals uh you know will be taken away in in sort of the near term as far as or, or they'll lose some rights in the near term like let's say three to five years as as things progress in terms of the the authority to be the steward of the land or manage the land do you think it's fair that that they hold that fear um i love this question because i believe that I, 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 I told a story in the previous podcast about when I realized that I didn't have to hate sporties, as in sports fishermen. I just had to be frustrated with the laws that they were following. Um, is that right that I told that yeah, story? Yeah, that's a good story. You should tell me, tell it. Let, let, let's kind of go down that road. Okay. And then that'll, that'll take so I was doing archaeology with my uh, archaeology partner in crime who is non-Indigenous and grew up uh, sports fishing. 
and we were doing archaeology in our territory and there's this boat that comes in and I start swearing. I'm getting mad. Oh, those damn sporties, blah, blah, blah. Because I have all these things in my head about what sporties do and all this. Yeah. And he said to me, uh, Spencer, I consider myself a sporty. What, what do you actually want here? Like, what do you want me to do? I thought when you're mad at me, I'm just trying to obey the law and be a good person. And so that's when this light came on that sporties aren't actively trying to screw indigenous people. They're actively trying to be good people who follow the law. And the laws are, laws are what a lot of people do. Those laws are there for conservation. Yeah. But from an indigenous perspective, this is where I'm like trying to show my human self that I'm overcome with fear. I'm overcome with fear that the government is screwing us. Mm -hmm. And I assume that that misconception mixed up in how I was talking about sporties that day and how my buddy was able to like frame it in a way that a light bulb went on for me. I hope I can do that with this fear. And that the way I was fearing that the government or that sporties were actively trying to screw us, I hope resident hunters can understand that indigenous people aren't actively trying to screw them. What indigenous people are saying is that we recognize that you're just trying to follow the law. It just so happens that we think we have, uh, a, we have pretty much empirical evidence that we have a better management system and better legal systems than what you're following. So maybe you should consider listening to this. Yeah, particularly as it applies locally, like can be done. <laughs> That's Claire Bear just firing it up. It must be nine o'clock or something time for her evening walk. <laughs> but no, I, and and it, I I see that as a positive thing. I think as a positive way forward. I, I don't think that we can say that our like the 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 pace that industrial and development has gone in British Columbia has outpaced our ability to manage wildlife and fisheries effectively. Totally. Under our current yeah. setup. So we need all the help we can get. So we need to work with everybody. We all need to get together and figure out this problem and throw all of our resources at it to hopefully, you know, stem the loss of habitat, the loss of, of you know, fish and wildlife. And, and eventually, if we don't get it right, it, like, we're all going to lose our way of life. And, yeah. And that, that is, that, that's what I'm scared of. I'm just scared of losing my way of life, but totally. right now, like I, I want to work with anybody that, that w the efforts that I'm putting forward are, 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 are done in a way that I are, 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 um, magnified and, uh, um, there's a better word for it when you work with more people, it becomes more, um, it amplifies what you're doing and, um, becomes, uh, you know, we have a better chance of success. And that's what I'm, I, that's all I want to do. I want, I want to try and, do some good for fish and wildlife and habitat. And I'm glad that we're having this conversation because I, I hope it, like you said, I hope it helps reduce fear in people and, and, and we can all look for opportunities to work together. Yeah. And to answer your question about, is it right for people to feel that fear? I can empathize and I understand because I felt that fear, but on both ends, that fear is not realistic. That's the difference. And so, yes, I can see why people feel that fear. But if you dig down into the dirt and like really 
get into the topic, you soon learn that the fear is unrealistic. And we get to a place, if you dig down in that dirt, we get to the place you're talking about right there, where it's these different um, ways of coming to the question, problem solving in, in, in a very productive way. Yeah, excellent. Excellent. So, all right, this is round three. Did we, did we cover off what we wanted to cover off on our third time through? Yeah. And, and so, I mean, we keep getting to this point where I want to talk about neat little tidbits about my own culture <laughs> and what it's like to, uh, you know, the cool little things that... And, and, I've got a plan for that. Yeah. And, and so I was going to suggest maybe we just need, like, you come hunt with me and then we can, like, debrief about the hunt and there's, like, cool little things. Um, what I mentioned before was, I mean, we're about to go seaweed picking. And the way we pick seaweed, yeah. you pull it off and you wouldn't think to, but we're taught to rip off the tips. And you don't know why you're taught that. But you're taught that because when you rip off the tips – you spread the spores of the seaweed and it creates this giant seaweed garden. And there's, it's just like this beautiful piece of traditional knowledge. And I want to take you out, Dylan, so I can show you some of those things, you know, show you like, oh, we hunt seal here because, you know, this is a cool uh, salmon migratory area. And by hunting here, you're like managing salmon at the same time. Yeah, cool. Cool tidbits about that, about indigenous like active hunting that we actually need to talk about as opposed to politics. Um, well, we're done, man. We, we did it. We got, okay. I just yeah. hope that both mics worked and the complex way we're recording this has worked. And, but yeah, we've done the hard part. Now we can just be, we, now we can just go hunting and hang out and have real wild food conversations. Cause that's what, that's what we both want to do. So I, I, I'm very honored that you would invite me to come hang out with you and, I want to go hunt seal, man. Let's go. I like, like just, like, I don't want, I don't need to hunt it. I just want to participate and just observe. I, I'm, I'd be, I'd be, that'd be really cool. Um, but we got, we got, we've been musing about some adventures. We've been talking about, well, maybe walking in the Cassiars and maybe getting over to the, the to the, to Haida Gwaii. But, um, yeah, I'm, I'm up for an adventure. So let's, uh, let's take this conversation offline and talk about what our adventure is going to be. Um, but I just want to, you know, um, Lagode, I want to thank you for sharing your knowledge. I, I, I know that you're going to take a bit of shit in your community, probably for maybe oversharing it th some things, but I know that that's often a fine balance to, to share this important information and it can be really hard to do. And I want to acknowledge that you, you do, you do very well. And, um, but I know it, it, it's, um, uh, you need to be brave to do it and I know it's hard to do it. So thank you so much for, for sharing with, with me and, and, whoever is fortunate enough to listen to this, this podcast. So thank you. Thanks for having me. Cool. If people want to find out more about you, uh, where, where, where can they find out more about you? Um, you can Google me. You might find some of my, I, I I'm in, because I'm an academic, I'm involved in publications and research, but also I've, I've started doing some editorials here and there. Um, and also, so Google Spencer Greening or, uh, probably my name, uh, Lagod, L-A apostrophe G-O-O-T, or go put out either of those into Instagram and I should pop up. And sometimes I share stuff on there. That's where I'm most active in the media. Or come to Prince Rupert and track me down. Prince Rupert or Hartley Bay. 
<laughs> Not too hard to find in Hartley Bay, I'm sure. No. <laughs> no, this has been great. And uh, I'll, I'll put a little bit more into the intro when I when I roll this together and uh, about about your work. And um, there's also a great article uh, you wrote for April Vokey's um, new sort of media platform talking about Indigenous approaches to um, land management or, and resource management and then there's this great story there as well she did a, a really long like an excellent podcast with you as well which is originally where I where I heard you and and um, and so yeah super super happy to have you here and, and uh, let's uh, let's have a cup of tea offline here great cool thank you so much yeah. okay thanks folks for listening uh, please this podcast more than any other podcast please share this podcast with your friends tell people about it if you get a chance rate the podcast and uh, we'll keep doing them and we'll definitely get Spencer back on here um, when we're out on an adventure and we'll be talking food and adventures all right have a good one everybody